time to play ball. Welcome to the podcast with no limits. Whether it be sports, current events, or random thoughts, this is the place to step in and stay a while. Your host is a proud alumnus of Rio Hondo Prep, a former minor league baseball umpire, and a man with strong opinions. Welcome to the Get Home Safe podcast and your host, Matt Persima. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Get Home Safe. It is a Friday edition of the podcast. And once again, I have a wonderful, wonderful guest for you guys here to take us around third and home safe for the weekend. Uh, This person has, well, it's been a long time coming. A lot of people have wanted this guy to come on the program for quite some time. And uh, we're gracious enough to uh, be with him today, for him to join us today, I should say. Uh, We're going to be joined by Pete Clark. A, um, a, a, a fan favorite, I should say, of, of the podcast. Many listeners here have wanted Pete to come on. And, you know, it was a few months back where Pete had a, a rather scary moment uh, in his life, uh, scary for all of us, uh, you know, kind of a, a near-death experience, a very, uh, very unfortunate uh, heart attack situation. I'll let him tell you about all of it here on the program. But uh, he had a lot of us very scared. And um, by the grace of God, he has recovered. He told me a few weeks back that he was willing to come on the program, just needed to get the, the voice back, uh, you know, back in check and, and such. So uh, he's here today. We're going to chat with him. I know you guys are excited about this. I know I'm excited about this. We're going to talk about a lot of things. Pete's journey through KYL and RHP. Um, that one brief year, he coached the Glendora Gators in 1995-96, my, my fifth grade year. Uh, that's when I met Pete for the first time. Uh, his coaching alongside Mr. Ken Drain at Rio Hondo Prep for basketball, his playing days, Pete's, Pete's work in China, uh, educating children uh, about uh, not just English, but about God. So just a lot to get to today. And uh, I've been wanting to say this for a long time, guys, but it is my privilege to bring to you guys today uh, a hopefully fun-filled conversation with Mr. Pete Clark. Okay, this has been a long time in the making. I am finally joined by Peter Clark. He's in his classroom in between grading papers, or maybe someone else is grading his papers for him. I'll let him tell you all about that. Coach Clark, what's going on? What is up, Matty Matt? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Long time in the making. You got that right, man. I, I, I think uh, last time I, I wanted you to come on, that was a few presidential terms ago. Uh, COVID didn't exist. I mean, there was all kinds of stuff going on. Uh, I wasn't working in this country. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah, a lot has happened. Uh, unbelievable is right, Pete. Before we get into anything else, man, um, you know, a lot of people have requested you to come on, have said, hey, what about Pete Clark? I said, i I'd love to make that happen too. Um, I didn't think it would take kind of a life-changing event to kind of expedite this a bit. Um, Everyone wants to know out there who has not seen you or talked to you. um, How are you feeling? Uh, Take us back to um, your heart attack situation a few months ago. Take us back through all that and kind of give us a a rundown to where we're at now, if you would. Yeah, sure. Um, Well, for myself, uh, it was weird because I actually don't remember anything about the heart attack. Um, I remember bits and pieces 
in the uh, two weeks leading up to it. And then I don't remember anything for 11 or, or 12 days after the heart attack. So literally almost a month was uh, gone in my memory. And, but I do remember working out uh, a couple of days before. Uh, I was doing shoulders and uh, went after it pretty hard and uh, did chest that, that Wednesday and uh, felt really good after my workout. My wife and I played tennis on Tuesday and then uh, went for like a, a, like a fast paced walk that we went about uh, four, four miles or so, a little more than four miles on, uh, on Thursday. And then, you know, I was pre preparing for championship baseball game and uh, championship was Saturday. And from what my wife tells me, uh, my team was doing pretty good and we were winning. And uh, it was probably like 15, 20 minutes left in the game uh, when I went down. And so uh, the recovery after that, like I said, uh, I woke up in the hospital about uh, 10 days later and um, remember much of what had happened to me. And when I woke up, I was looking around going, what in the world? And the thing that woke me up was uh, the nurses come in to draw blood and run. And that's when I kind of like, what world am I doing in here? What, what happened? And then I thought that I was in a car accident and uh, it wasn't until uh, I woke up again on the eight o'clock in the morning and uh, my doctor or a doctor had been to check on me and run a few more tests. And I didn't ask him, but on the equipment that was set up in the room, I was like, oh, uh, this is, wasn't a car accident. Hmm, I wonder why I'm here. And then I saw my wife sleeping in the corner and that's kind of when I realized, oh man, this was, must've been much more major. And so I just automatically went to heart attack. So uh, just based off the test they were doing to me, and things like that. So that's pretty crazy. You had no idea. You don't remember going down, collapsing, anything. You just were coaching a baseball game one one at one moment and you wake up two weeks later. I mean, you, you see stuff like that in movies or something, but right. you don't ever to experience that. I mean, first off, Pete, uh, how old are you? I am 49 years old. You're, you're 49 years old. I think uh, most people would say that uh, you look to be in, in, in great health and great shape. Uh, you don't really have any excess weight on you or anything. You're very active. So when most of us heard about this, we were all stunned, not just for your age, but also your health. And it put a, it put a lot into all of us. Like, wait a minute, this can happen to Pete. It can happen to anybody. So you, you started, you started to think about or to realize it was a heart attack at that point were you like, wait a minute, I'm 49. I'm, I'm in relatively good health. How could this happen to me? Right. And I think I went back even, uh, if you even go back the, the whole probably 10 years or so, uh, ever, you know, I was constantly going to a gym, um, three days a week, at least, uh, I was doing some type of cardio as well. Uh, all of last year, I was doing, uh, you know, Shanti's T25 and, um, 
and my wife and I were working out. And so, you know, it wasn't like I was just sitting on the couch doing nothing for a couple of years, just eating whatever I wanted. I was really trying to watch my intake, watch all of those things. And then, you know, even leading up to it, I never felt any discomfort whatsoever. Uh, you know, there was never any chest pains. There was never any anything that went along that way. And uh, all of a sudden that morning uh, during the game, I just didn't feel right. And uh, I had called the umpire over. This was relayed to me by a couple of different people, my wife included, as well as the umpire. Called him over, told him I wasn't feeling good. And he thought that I was talking about what was going on in the game. He's looking at me like, your team's up by like 10 runs. Why don't you feel good? And so uh, I was like, no, 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 it has nothing to do with the game. It's my body. And that's when he, uh, my wife says shortly after, within the next minute or two, uh, after I talked to the umpire and kind of resumed the game that I had gone down. So, yeah, it was just crazy. Well, well, not to make light of a situation, Pete, but, you know, for those 10 days, 12 days, whatever it was, excuse me for forgetting, but, you know, you got to sleep through it. And the rest of us, the rest of us are here stressing and, and, and praying and crying and all kinds of emotions. And then for you to wake up, just being like, oh, what happened with the rest of us? I know your family was, was huge. It was there every day. Your brother, Paul Clark, posting stuff on social media every nine minutes or whatever. I mean, for you to wake up and be like, oh, I'm fine. What's the big deal? The rest of us were go. Oh, it was torture. Yeah, yeah, it was it was crazy, uh, you know. And just uh, my wife, I really have to give a shout out to her and just how much of a blessing she really was. I know so many people came to the hospital and so many, you know, people were lifting me up, which was huge because I I know for a fact that God answered prayer. And in this case, it was it was amazing just to see the hundreds and hundreds of people who were in small group or small prayer groups, just uh, lifting their voices up to God and, and praying for me. Um, you know, one thing about my wife was, uh, you know, she, as you can imagine, seeing your husband go down out on the ball field, uh, what she relayed to me from her point of view, uh, because we had a really deep conversation about this, uh, back in July. So two months, almost three months had gone by when we finally kind of talked about it and kind of decompressed from it. But she told me that day, she just what just couldn't believe it was basically in a state of shock as, as I think all, all listeners out there can, can imagine. And then, uh, the next day she felt really with peace from God saying that I'm by your side, uh, I'm here, uh, you don't have any worries because I'm going to see you through this. And after that, she was a trooper uh, up until the point where uh, a nurse was trying to uh, draw blood and <laughs> the needle, she could see the needle moving back and forth in my arm and, and that just was too much to handle and they had to take her down to the to the uh, emergency room just to let her kind of relax a little bit, you know. They had to wheelchair wheelchair her down there. But uh, other than that one moment, 
she was just amazing. And uh, just just to be able to have her there and and just have her as my rock, you know, and she was doing stuff that, you know, paid nurses have a hard time doing, you know, and it just was just incredible. Absolutely. So, so when she agreed to marry you not too long ago, you know, she, she, she had a long list of things uh, of this nature that she knew she was, she was signing up for, right? Yeah. I, I don't <laughs> think it, it was quite coming this soon for her. Yeah. He was thinking, yeah, man, when this dude's 90, yeah, I'll be doing some of this stuff. But man, had she known it was only going to be eight, nine months later, she, I don't know that she would have signed up for that deal. Wow. Not even, not even married a year and, and yeah. she gets, uh, she gets thrown into this. So, uh, you know, we've all been praying and thinking of you, Pete, but yeah, for Sarah, your wife. Um, uh, yeah. A lot of people, we had to be like, Hey, let's think of her now because she's, she's doing a lot. And, and we all prepared for the worst Pete, you know, it's, it's sad to say, but, but if you're realistic with everything you look within and we've all had experiences with this type of stuff, you do prepare for the worst, you pray, pray for the best. And, uh, I can honestly say I felt like there was a sense of a miracle you coming out of this when there was different reports from Paul and other people that certain days it was not looking good. So, I mean, speak to, if you will, just that whole concept of this really yeah. being a miracle. You know, Matt, I'm glad you bring that up because uh, it's just, okay, from, from my point of view and from everyone who witnessed what happened, it just was incredible at the amount of people who were there to lend a hand in whatever way they were able to uh take for example uh the doctor who was the first responder literally came out of the stands to start uh cpr and first aid on me and he's a trauma doctor and about uh 15 or, or 18 years ago I coached his older three sons and he has, he has children who are in their twenties, like mid twenties, early twenties, who I used to coach back in the day, never knew he was a doctor because of how humble he was. And uh, he's not one of those kind of guys who walks around, shows up at practice with the stethoscope still around his neck or, you know, wearing scrubs and just, he, he's just real low key about it. And it wasn't until his wife said, you know what, I think you need to go out there and assist before he even got up to come out on the field. And uh, in talking to him and his wife, they came in to visit me and they were actually the first people who I could remember visiting me. Uh, it was incredible. And just to see him and, you know, the odds of us playing against his son, his youngest son's team, who was, who was six at the time, uh, playing against them uh, in championship. And we're not even at our home park. We're at their park. So we had to travel, which was a better deal for me because we were much closer to a better hospital that was better equipped to take care of me and, and much closer to the freeway. Literally, it's right there within 30 seconds of the parking lot to get onto the freeway and to be able to drive to to Arcadia Methodist, you know, it just, everything, we could have been out in the Upland or we could have been in Covina. Not saying that their hospitals out there 
couldn't have handled the situation well, but I think that I was in a position to be taken to Arcadia Methodist. And, you know, there was a couple of nurses who were on the scene as well. And there was also the, uh, I forget what they call it, but the, um, you know, the clear machine. Oh, oh the, uh, yeah, at the park that, there, yeah. Yeah, it was at the park as well. So, you know, he was there and he's a trauma doctor. So, you know, that he's got experience in these sorts of situations and for him to come down, hit that up. And then my cousin, who's a firefighter uh, in Arcadia, he uh, he's actually with with someone and taking a patient to Arcadia Methodist uh, when he's a he's Arcadia paramedic. So all of a sudden they hear over the radio that they've got somebody else. And when he gets to the hospital, he finds out that it's me. And so, you know, it's during the time of COVID, but because he's a first responder, because he worked for Arcadia PD, he asked his chief if he could stick around and kind of figure out what's going on and be able to get the message downstairs to family and friends. And so that was another miracle in itself that, that he happened to be on call, arrived at the hospital almost the same time that I arrived. It was just another miracle that, that just lined up every step of the way. Uh, yeah, there's definitely a lot of dots that were connected by, by the man upstairs. And, uh, you know, you spoke at the Ken Drain uh, retirement party, and I'd like for you to share the story you told about the, the doctor who happened to be there. The chance of him even being there, uh, you know, probably started a few years back. I thought that that was a really funny story. So please share that with us. Uh, Sure. Uh, So the doctor who who was there, uh, Dr. Castro, he, um, his three sons, I coached in the early 2000s. And so now the oldest one's 20, 25, I believe. Next one's 23. And then the next one is 21. Well, on my summer vacation in 2018, I believe it was, I had come back to California from China to visit uh, family and friends. And we go in after church one day. Uh, we're at the in and out in near Citrus College and Azusa Pacific. And we're in there and the Castro family comes rolling in. And so I see this little Castro. He's like four years old, you know, three years old. And I'm, I'm just looking at him. And he's almost a spitting image of the oldest one who I used to coach. And so I'm just looking at him going, what, what, waiting for them to introduce, hey, our oldest child has a son and here he is. And nobody's introducing him. And so I'm kind of like perplexed. So I go and I'm like, so who is this? And so they introduce him and they're like, oh, he's ours as well. And I'm like, wait, what? And, and she's like, well, that was my husband's expression when I told him I was pregnant. <laughs> Same expression was what? So she was 46 when they conceived and 47 when she gave birth to him. And, uh, you know, they call it their anniversary baby. And I call it the miracle baby. <laughs> this kid was born at the right time to get Mr. Castro in the stands when I went down that's how I see it you know it's a it's a circle yes yes absolutely a big time man 
an anniversary uh, for, for the family in their mid to late 40s there. So moral of the story is no matter how long you've been married, folks, let's enjoy those anniversaries. You never know. Absolutely. You never know what may lead to. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> incredible. A miracle, baby. Incredible. So, yeah, I, I, I was thankful. I'm sure they were shocked in that moment. Uh, I was just as shocked standing there in, in and out wondering what in the world how in the world and you know the three older boys that they're like adults and driving and everything and then they've got this little pipsqueak that comes bopping through so <laughs> pretty amazing well pete i mean i i look at you now i saw you a few weeks back at the drain retirement party and i just i can't wrap my head around the fact that you had this massive heart attack a few weeks ago you're in great spirits. You're joking. Uh, you're, you're open to talk about this thing. I mean, what is it that is giving you this, this peace really where you're just, I don't know, you're like your old self again. Yeah. You know, um, for me, mainly I look at it as a second chance, uh, you know, and to be able to live every day with that ability that, you know, it was, it was almost gone. Uh, you know, I, I really feel like in, in some ways, like Lazarus, you know, where uh, it just, my heart stopped for six to eight minutes. And uh, Mr. Castro, as long as well as the uh, nurses who were there, kind of kept the blood circulating through my body and my brain, <laughs> still yet to be diagnosed, but uh, feels like all my faculties are there. So it's just, uh, just incredible. And, you know, just to be able to wake up uh, with my wife every day and, and just uh, grind it out, grind one more day out and just not take anything as like a given, you know, and just uh, I thought that I'd lived a charmed life. I went over and I was in China for almost a decade and just, man, I thought that that was the greatest thing that God could have done for me. And now uh, he's given me second chance at, at life here on earth and to be able to try to impact uh, people, whoever I meet, uh, you know, every step of the way. And it's interesting that you bring that up about, hey, your, your attitude seems like really good after going through this. Uh, when I went in for a few checks in the hospital back in June, uh, they had warned me that this could be a possible uh, step could be depression or, you know, deep anxiety, uh, the ability not to move because they've seen patients go through this and all of a sudden come out of it, uh, not enjoying their life, but anxious about the days, anxious. And, you know, uh, I think that having seen so many men and women of, of God already pass away and just seeing that and knowing that they're in a better place uh, and just um, having that to look forward to. Uh, some days here can be difficult. Uh, sometimes it can be rough in the classroom, uh, but looking forward and going, you know, today's a gift. It's God's given me a gift to be able to go out and, and just share his love 
you know, he sent Christ on this earth that Christ loved us, that Christ gave up his own life because he loved us. You know, there, I'm not even close. There's, there's zero chance that I'm going to be anything close to what Christ ever was. But just that joy that he sacrificed himself for me, I, I was no good. You know, I, I'll be the first one to admit that I had all kinds of issues. Uh, I wasn't very nice to my classmates when I was in middle school and high school. And if it wasn't for Christ coming into my heart and changing it, you know, I wouldn't be here today. And I'm so thankful for that. And, and just, I, I thank God for that every day. I thank God for my wife every day. Uh, because, you know, there, there's a time where I was content and I, I felt, okay, I'm okay, God. If, if I don't get married, I'm okay with that. But he saw fit to bring her into my life. And, and hopefully she feels the same way. Uh, going through COVID, not in your own country and uh, having to go through that uh, in not the most ideal conditions has been uh, tough for her. But I've seen her just be an amazing person throughout this whole situation. And it, it's just been amazing for me to be able to watch that and it, a huge encouragement as well as a, a huge thing to be able to, to stand on when you're feeling weak, when you've had a tough day at work or when you've had a tough, tough 10 minutes where your heart stops beating, you know, you just uh, uh, come up from it much more blessed uh, and much more thankful. Well, all that's happened is, you know, it, we bottled up the worst uh, rest of your life into these first eight months so that the rest is smooth sailing for Sarah. That's the way I look at it. She'll be, <laughs> she'll be fine the rest of the way after putting up with these last eight months or so. Absolutely. <laughs> well, tell, well, Pete, you talked about, um, you know, a little bit of your, your life's journey and, and, you know, let's, let's talk about that. Let's go into it and uh, veer off any exit you want here, but uh, tell, tell us about most people know you who are listening here, but not everybody, everybody does tell me about, where, where you were born and raised and, and how you stumbled upon uh, uh, Care Youth League, uh, that, that place in Arcadia, California. Sure. Um, you know, my, my dad's from Ohio and my mom's from Oklahoma. So, you know, there's no way that we should have ended up here in California. But uh, my dad was stationed in the Air Force and spent some time in Europe and then uh, came back stateside and was stationed at uh, Tinker Air Force Base in Oklahoma. And my mom happened to be working at that Air Force base as a civilian. And so uh, they met there and uh, got married in Oklahoma and actually spent, I, I believe, it was the first year of marriage in Oklahoma before coming out here. My mom had been out here, I believe, uh, at least one time, if not several times. And my dad's family had moved out here for a time period and then gone back to Oklahoma so he had spent a lot of time out in California. Uh, as a matter of fact, grew up right in the Pasadena area. And so um, they got married. And after a year being in Oklahoma, uh, they decided to come west and uh, enjoy just the beautiful sunshine and, and outstanding weather that we have here and start a family here. And so uh, 
they raised my brother and sister right there in Pasadena. But my dad, I've got to give him a lot of credit because his insight as to what was happening in the particular area of Pasadena where they were living at the time uh, got him to want to move the family to someplace different. And each time it was crazy, but uh, each time the real estate agents kept taking him and my mom to go see houses that weren't necessarily bad neighborhoods at the time. But when my dad looked at them, he saw, you know, I see something happening here in this part of town that I really don't want to bring my family up in this section. So eventually they changed real estate agents four or five times before they found a real estate agent who was willing to share with them different areas to live. And finally they settled right there in the foothills uh, of Duarte. And um, you know, it happened to be an all white neighborhood when they moved in. And uh, they shared a story with me when they moved in because they moved into that neighborhood before I was born and uh, shared with me that uh, there was a neighbor up the street. Uh, you have to imagine this is the 1960s. Uh, so, you know, not everybody uh, kind of had the same, kind of had the thinking today that that's going on where, hey, judge a person by their character, not by how they look. And so, uh, you know, my parents moved in and uh, my brother and sister and that there was a guy who tried to get petition to go around the neighborhood to have us not be allowed to move in there. But uh, wow. fortunately for us, nobody else in that neighborhood felt the same way and uh, didn't sign the petition. And so uh, this guy ended up moving out of there with his family. No idea where he went and uh, it's unfortunate for him, but uh, you know, it was very interesting about uh, three or four years later, maybe even more, another family moved in and uh, they just shared this story with me about uh, 10 or 12 years ago. And they had been our neighbors for a good 25 years and when she shared this story with me. And uh, she said that when her and her husband moved in, um, they're a white family and their real estate agent said, hey, you want to see the black family that lives on the street? <laughs> and so they're like, uh, no, we, we could care less who lives on the street. We love the house. Uh, this neighborhood seems great. And so, no, 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 no. Let me, let me show you the black family. And so, uh, you know, they, they got in the real estate agent's car and the real estate agent drove down the street and drove them past our house and uh, said, look, look right there. That's where the family lives. That's where the family lives. <laughs> <laughs> stop it stop being it. like a like a, a zoo exhibit almost you oh know my goodness come on down and see them and check them out but uh it was it was a great place to grow up you know uh nobody in that neighborhood judged us by how we looked but judged us by the character of, of each and every person in our family and uh you know growing up there was wonderful everyone was great uh, my best friend, Mark Atencio from up the street, awesome guy. Uh, we grew up together until uh, we were 12, 13 years old and just had a wonderful time, you know, and just everybody 
in the street. Our, our neighborhood was so great that we were able to have block parties and every 4th of July, we'd seal it off, have block parties. Everybody would chip in and the, and the firefighter who moved in down the street, he would bring his firefighter stuff down and you know unhook the uh, fire hydrant and bring out the hose and just spray it down. It was just an awesome, awesome experience growing up there. So, you know, small town feel here in Los Angeles and just, uh, just a great upbringing. And then my brother and sister joined Care Youth League uh, when they were in elementary school, I believe. And, um, you know, I was two or three years old, so I had no idea what was going on. But uh, just love the fact that they were playing ball. Hold on, hold on. Okay, we're trying to polish up some of the technical issues here. We got the fans and air conditioners off, the microphones in the right spot. We'll see if all any of this improves. We don't miss out on any of this good stuff. Yeah, Pete Clark, Pete Clark. Yeah, there he is. Okay, so your brother, your sister, they joined Care Youth League. They love playing ball, and they're they're both a little older than you, right? Yeah, so I'm uh, five years younger than my brother and seven years younger than my sister. So I was a bit of an accident baby myself, or anniversary baby there we go so, uh you know hoorah, hoorah. <laughs> so so uh yeah or at least that's what they kept telling me growing up it's like man you're an accident you're not even supposed to be here so yeah accident mistake no 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 blessing that's a better yeah. let's yeah. let's let's put it uh let's put it the right way so uh pete so you remember your, your siblings playing in care and was that something as a younger brother, you're like, I want to do that too. Or did you kind of get dragged along? No, absolutely. Uh, as soon as I saw my brother and sister out there playing, I was like, man, I, when can I be a part of this? And, uh, as you know, or like most listeners may not know, uh, Duarte and Monrovia used to belong to what was called the Atlantic pirates. And so um, we had a great area. And so that bus would come by to pick them up or drop them off. And kids would get off that bus wearing their uniform and it'd be that royal blue and, and, and gold and white. And, you know, it was just always, man, I can't wait to be a pirate. And that, that pirate decal on the side of my brother's football helmet was just amazing to me. And I, I was always fired up to be it. And so, uh, I still remember my mom was able to get me in at four years old uh, because the, the regular age to join was kindergarten, five years old. And uh, myself and a, a, one of my best friends growing up, Rocky Winrick, we came in early, man. We came in at four years old, gung-ho and ready to rock and roll. So uh, it was pretty awesome to join then and absolutely loved it. Uh, Mr. Bill Orsburn was my first coach in care. And uh, man, if, if ever somebody was able to, to imprint something on me, it was him. It was, you've got to be mentally tough. You've got to withstand the pressure and go out there and perform and, and just give it your all and do your best. And uh, just, I, I loved him because he showed love to me in a way that, I don't think my dad could at the time. My, my dad would go out and play ball with us, but not the same way Mr. Orsburn would play ball, you know? And my dad wasn't really big on challenging me while playing sports. 
uh, in the classroom. He would challenge me. Um, but Mr. Orsburn could challenge me playing ball. And, you know, he, he and my dad kind of raised me the same way where once Mr. Orsburn would get after me, I just felt like it was similar to what my dad would get after me, same way. And it was easy to respond to that, you know? So it was great having him as my first coach, as my first leader. See, Rod Bazuzzi had some uh, similar things to say about Mr. Orsburn, uh, but except he said one of the big things Mr. Orsburn did for him was, uh, was he spanked him for the first time. And Rod had never experienced that. He went, he went to his grandma and mom for sympathy, and they're like, well, you probably deserved it. So, yeah, Mr. Orsburn, just a disciplinarian you guys from Duarte needed. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know us guys from Duarte, we were pretty crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Bazuzzi was a lot of fun to talk to, man. We talked like two hours and uh he, he was great, man, talking about growing up in Dwarty and playing for Mr. Orsburn and care. And he's like he needed care so much. And uh just oh, yeah. a, what a guy. What a guy. You've been in touch with Rod much? Yes, absolutely. You know, uh on the Dwarty bus, you know, we we yeah. get together and just uh <laughs> have a great time. The white ghetto child, as we <laughs> refer to him as in in the streets of Doherty. <laughs> Talk about growing up on opposite ends. It was like, whoever said there's white privilege has never really met most of, of the white guys who grew up in Doherty. <laughs> I think I had more privilege than most of the white guys who were on my team than, uh, you know, what's going around nowadays, especially for Rod. You know, he just... Uh, being one of the only white students at his school and just uh, having to walk the, the streets of uh, South Duarte there. Cause you know, in every city, in every story, in every movie, there's always those railroad tracks that separates the city. And uh, poor Rod lived below the tracks and I was above the tracks. And so uh, our upbringing was slightly different except for maybe in the disciplinary uh, action of it. Because, you know, we're still dealing with a black family. And uh, we had both my, my parents, uh, their roots are in the South. So uh, both, both ancestors come from the South. And so, you know, they're, they're not afraid to lay a hand on you. And uh, usually on the black side. So <laughs> I don't know if Bill Orsburn uh, grew up in the dirty South or not, but uh, <laughs> he came with that same mentality. And, you know... My dad and mom were 100% behind him. Hey, if any of my children are messing up, hey, you know what to do. And he was never abusive and never anything like that. But, hey, he had to get the attention. And, you know, oftentimes when you're dealing with, with children who don't have a male role model at home, it can be tougher in dealing with that child, uh, especially nowadays uh, as a teacher. It's pretty crazy, but, uh, you know, back then spanking was still allowed, you know, and, uh, my principal at my first, uh, public school, he was being, uh, grandfathered in because they had stopped spanking in the public schools, unless you were a principal or administrator who had come in at a certain time. And so the principal at my first public school, uh, principal Asper, I still remember him in kindergarten, he pulled a kid out of class and uh, right out in front of the classroom, gave him a spanking. And he pulled me out of class 
because I was hanging around with that same kid. But he pulls me out, and I'm just looking at him, and he could see the fear in my eyes. And all he had to do was just shake his finger at me and give me that talk. And I was like, model student after that, man. <laughs> no problem whatsoever. So it was just uh, a different era. And, uh, you know, nowadays you can't lay your hand on a kid. But, uh, you know, it, it's pretty crazy. Absolutely. Well, Pete, I think most kids remember their days in KYL quite vividly. Just uh, you talked about those uh, Atlantic pirate teams wearing that logo and those colors. And uh, we'll get into that a, a little later. <laughs> I, I have, I have some thoughts, but uh, you know, let's talk about real Hondo prep. Um, you know, I, I tell people I went there. I, I'm very proud of the fact that it, we went there. The football program has done great and kind of given, given the, the school some great exposure, but uh, yes. what, what was it like for you? You went to Rio Hondo Prep in elementary school, didn't you? Yeah. So I started uh, my first grade year about uh, midway through my first grade year. Uh, my mom comes in and says, hey, uh, we're thinking about sending you to Rio Hondo. And I was like, whoa. So I went for a visit. I was nervous, obviously. But uh, I, I kind of knew Rick Johnson a little bit because uh, my sister took piano lessons from his mom. And so when I got there, I knew a couple of the Atlantic kids uh, just from riding the bus with them every once in a while. And I just felt free, if, that's, if that makes any sense. Um, some of the listeners might be going, what free, what freedom, what, are you crazy? But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I felt free to be the person who I felt like I was, you know, I could, um, I could run, I could learn the, the, the thing that was my most amazing experiences for myself was just how much I was able to learn. And probably if you talk to my brother, uh, it, he kind of goes along the same line where I felt like every day I was learning something new. And it wasn't necessarily something out of a book. It could be something practical, something where we're out on the field, something breaks, and we're taught how to fix it. Or one of our field trips is real hands-on. Uh, you know, at, at my public school, I wasn't getting that. Uh, my, my kindergarten teacher, she was fantastic, Mrs. Graham. Uh, she was a wonderful kindergarten teacher. But I just felt like my learning was able to be excelled at a faster pace and just a different level as soon as I appeared on campus at Rio Hondo. And whether it was learning in a team environment or learning in the classroom, I just felt, felt really good about what, what we were able to do there. And, uh, you know, the science camps were just amazing. Um, the summer trips were amazing. Uh, just being able to sharing the experience of going out on the ball field and trying to teach somebody else skills that I had learned and, and get those across to someone else. And even uh, Dave Reed, we had Mr. Dave Reed as our PE teacher, I believe it was in uh, fifth grade and, or sixth grade, one of those two. And just to have him out there where he kind of made us start to feel like we were taking on a manly role uh, in the fact that every day for PE, 
we'd see the older kids go out and play games. They divide up and play teams. He made us run. We're running laps. I'm like, we'd actually run around the field where these guys are playing and have time and just be like, oh my goodness. I can't believe those guys get to play. This is so stupid. I hate PEA. I hate Mr. Reed and da da da. You know, six ways a Sunday. We're doing fireman's carry, and I've got to take like Todd Carson, throw him over my shoulders, and walk this dude 10 yards, 20 yards, however long Coach Reed wants us to carry this guy for. And I'm having to learn how to do this at an early age. And for anybody who hasn't met me before or didn't know me when I was in elementary school, I was about, you know, when I was eight, I probably weighed 55 pounds. Uh, when I was 12, I looked like I was six. It was just one of those kind of things where, and, you know, guys in my class, they're shaving in seventh and eighth grade, or they're starting to grow hair in seventh and eighth grade. And I don't even know what hair is. It's just like, you got to be kidding me. That stuff comes out of there. What? And, you know, I'm, I'm like, there's no way and uh, you know I'm, I'm just looking at it just going I'm never going to be able to reach the same same level as these guys just because they're so much bigger than I am yeah but it just those things going through those things I absolutely love uh and just growing up there we had a fort that was built behind the elementary school and we used to climb the outside of that bad boy six ways a Sunday and they had no fencing whatsoever around the outside. And so you had to learn how to climb and how to athletically move and the balance and everything from that. Because if you didn't, you were going down 10 feet and it was gonna hurt, you know? <laughs> and so it's just one of those things and we're playing tag out there and we're jumping from that thing onto the, to the bridge that was connected to the sport and just having a great time and, and doing it. Man, absolutely well, loved it. That's outstanding. Yeah, just learning, learning life as a kid, running around and scraping your knees and getting hurt a little bit. Just that's how yeah, you learn. I absolutely. love it. You mentioned Todd Carson, a good friend of mine. Um, he told me, I don't know if you remember this, I think you were just waking up in the hospital and he he brought up, uh, uh, I guess you guys raced when you were very little kids at Rio. Oh, and, yeah. And oh, yeah. uh, I'll let you tell the story. Do you remember what he asked, what he told you in the hospital bed? No, I, I don't remember what he, he mentioned to me, but uh, I do remember like the first day or maybe the second day on campus, I was like, okay, let's race. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. That's what I love to do. It's just like, in my mind, I was like, oh, we get to run? It's like, because <laughs> at, my, at my old school, man, there were so many rules for us that you really couldn't get out there and enjoy it. And out there on the field, it was just, I felt, like I said, that, that sense of freedom. And uh, he's like, ready, set, and the gun was off. And I was just like, felt like Forrest Gump running, you know? And it just, uh, one of those things where I, I look back at the end of the race, I'm like, where, what, what's going on? Where is everybody? Yeah. You know, because growing up in, in Duarte, you had guys who, who were just as fast as you, if not faster. You know, we had Mike Whiteside out there. These guys all ran fast. Dwayne Dalton just super quick. So I absolutely loved it. 
Well, well, Todd was Todd's very athletic and he, no one beats him in a distance race, but in a sprint, the guy has bricks. I mean, I, I think I, I might've even been uh, faster than him in a sprint. Um, but, but dude was this quick twitch dude. But so I had lunch with him after he saw you in the hospital bed and you were awake. I don't know how alert you were, but he told me that he told, he told you, Hey Pete, you know, uh, that first day of school back in Rio, you know, you, you beat me in a race. And, uh, you know, I, I think I'm ready for the rematch today <laughs> while you're in the hospital. Absolutely. Could have taken me. <laughs> I don't know. I, I might've had money on you still. I, I don't know. Maybe Sarah pushing the bed. I, I still think with Todd sprinting, he might've had a chance. Might've been pretty even. Matt, my problem is I think I would have run the wrong direction. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. After all the the good stuff you were uh, yeah. oh, absolutely. <laughs> you were doing there. Oh man. So, so speaking of Todd, speaking of other guys, you go into high school, uh, Pete, I really do mean this. I've talked with a lot of your former classmates, Todd, John Lee, you know, uh, Vazuzzi and uh, Rick Johnson. I mean, you really did have one of the most legendary, not just classes, but group of guys there on varsity uh, sports, especially you guys won the football championship in 90. You got so close in 91 with the, best basketball season Rio's ever seen. And then I think lost in the semis in baseball. What, what can you tell me about your legendary teammates and classmates really of that time that uh, I'm sure you're still lifelong friends with, but for a few years, a small window in your lives, it was the best of times. No, really. It it absolutely was as a collective group. And um, you know, all that in my mind, was kind of forged on the field when we were in elementary school and in junior high, because uh, I think when you when you go through something like that, and uh, we learn that nobody's going to have our back out there. You know, if if it was up to the administrators at RHP when we were in elementary, they'd have kicked the whole group out of school. You know, and and having grown up to become a school administrator, I can see in students why those teachers were like, get these kids out of here. There had to be at least six guys they wanted to kick out of school. And for whatever reason, other teachers would speak up for us. And we kind of had that, that on our, a chip on our shoulder of nobody likes us, nobody cares for us. And we're going to go out there and prove them wrong. And I think it was huge when Coach Strain came in and started coaching us in junior high. I don't think he knew what he was getting his hands into. And uh, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But as soon as we were able to get someone to lead us in the right direction, uh, guys just had each other's back. I still remember a time where uh, we're in elementary school we're out there and Rick's got an older brother and uh, Todd's got an older brother. And these guys are, are three or four years older than us. And so uh, when they're out there, they just start just slugging it out and just throwing blows. And all of a sudden Rick's like, don't do that to Todd. And he's telling, talking to his, to, to Todd's older brother. And all of a sudden Rick's older brother comes in and is like, well, you can't talk to my friend. And all of a sudden, these two guys are going at it. And guys from our class are wanting to get into the mix 
just to help them out, you know? And it just, uh, whenever we went on summer trips, it was like nobody messed around with us or we wouldn't let anyone mess around with us. I still remember walking into a bathroom. I believe we were in like Wyoming or, or uh, one of the Dakotas. But we go walking into a bathroom. This is our sophomore year, I, I believe it is. Maybe our freshman year. And uh, I hear someone drop the N-word. And I heard it as we were walking into the restroom. So I'm thinking, man, who said that? You know, and I'm just a scrawny little nobody. But I felt when we were in a group, I felt like, hey, I could handle myself. And so uh, walk in there, I'm like, who said that? Thinking it was somebody from our group. And uh, it turned out to be some truck driver who, uh, not even a truck driver, just like a guy who had stopped in the rest stop along with us and another guy he called the N-word to. And I'm like, what'd you say? And he's like, as he's walking out, you heard me. And I'm just like, you've got to be kidding me. And so <laughs> as he's walking out, Coach Dowd walks in and Coach Dowd's a big man. And so he's like, hey, what's going on in here? And this guy sees Coach Dowd and he's like, oh, oh well, uh, he doesn't have much to say. So he walks out. And uh, as we're walking back out to the bus, you know, it's our, our group. There's like six or seven, maybe eight of us in that group who are willing to fight this dude because he dropped the N-word. And it wasn't that the fact that it was the N-word, but he disrespected one of the members in our group. And we weren't going to let anybody disrespect anyone from our group. And I still feel like that's the same mentality we have today. Because if I call any of those guys in a heartbeat, they're going to be there for me. No matter what's transpired over the years, no matter what their job is, I feel like, and you can talk to almost to, to a man that each and every one of them at the drop of a hat would be there for the other guy, no matter what. You know, right now we, we have some uh, guys in our, in our class who are going through a lot uh, as far as not necessarily mentally, but uh, more so physically where uh, their body is just breaking down. And so, you know, I feel like it's our responsibility to make sure those guys are, are well taken care of, uh, you know, and, and so there's three or four who, who are going through some major medical issues right now. And it just feels like, Hey, we've got to be there to help them out and uh, really try to stay in touch with them. It's not like they're local. It, it's too bad that they're, they're not in the San Gabriel Valley anymore. Uh, a couple who have moved further away from the LA area, but uh, I know for a fact that a, a couple of guys have gone up to visit several of them. And at Mr. Drain's retirement party, we were able to get together and hear more about what's going on with, with a couple of them. So it's been huge. Uh, and I, I really feel like in that, uh, no matter what path, those guys are still my brothers. Mm -hmm. And we'll still go to fight for them no matter what. You know, it's, it's so powerful. And, and I feel bad for people that don't play sports. They never get that camaraderie. You may have classmates or, or friends, but there's nothing quite like teammates. And, you know, to your point, uh, I, I can't set a screen for someone anymore or, or lay a block or, 
or, uh, you know, run a play with them anymore, but there's so much more than that. You want to be there for your, for your teammates in a way that you did for a short window at uh, a time there. So yeah, athletics really does brings guys together. And, uh, you know, I've had the opportunity, like I said, to talk to some of your teammates, Dave Joe was, was so much fun to talk to. He talked about the, the, the Clark family and just, uh, he hated basketball, but he know you guys loved it. And so wanted to be the, the best effort he could. And, uh, if, if you would, Pete, first of all, a couple things, how, how small were you when you played varsity football and then also, and then that basketball team, I mean, uh, what are your comments uh, on that team that had such a good run? Well, we started playing basketball. We'll start with basketball first because that will kind of help explain how small I am uh, <laughs> or was. Uh, so uh, going into junior high again, coach train comes in and he coaches us and, uh, he wants to challenge us because I think in his mind, he sees there's potential there, but we're not reaching that potential. And he sees that we don't understand that we have potential. And so he schedules these, these uh, inner city schools and um, has us play them. And I still remember going into those gyms. One is a uh, hostler. Hostler Junior High, as a team driving down there for the game, much different than Arcadia, California. You know, uh, the makeup of the city, the what's going on during the uh, late 80s, and, uh, you know, that the whole, the whole South Central, you know, everything is kind of uh, any picture in your mind of inner city. That's where we drove to get to Hostler. Or at least in my, you know, seventh grade, eighth grade mind, that's what it felt like. Uh, I had relatives who lived in South Central, so I'd been there before, and uh, they weren't exactly in South Central, but we had to drive a ways into the hood to get there. And uh, I still remember walking across this park uh, to get to the gym where we were playing them at, and just uh, feeling like, okay, if something goes off here, I got my teammates back. Now, you have to remember, I'm about four foot six, maybe, maybe 72 pounds. And so, you know, we get out there and I think just being in that whole atmosphere of having to play against a tougher competition and having to really dig down deep and rely on your teammates because I wasn't very big. And we played against another school uh, that had Johnny McWilliams. Uh, For those of you who don't know Johnny McWilliams, uh, this is a guy who, who played, uh, at USC. Um, he was six foot four in eighth grade, probably six, four to, in my mind, two fifteen. but as an eighth grader, he probably wasn't two fifteen. He was probably more like a buck 85, but for me coming in, I was only 76, 78 pounds and I was four foot nine at at my end of my eighth grade year. So when I played him, I was probably like four, seven, four, eight. And uh, I still remember we're playing a game at Cal Poly Pomona and it's a big fundraiser. So our school made pretty, pretty good money off of this. Uh, The Raiders football team was playing against a fire department team. I believe they're from Pomona. And so they're playing them. Howie Long and the boys are out there playing against them out on the Cal Poly's court. We're like the pregame entertainment. 
So we're out there playing, playing uh, Johnny McWilliams and, and his teammates. And this guy comes down the lane on a breakaway. I'm standing right around the dotted line. And uh, I just kind of slide right out of the way as his size 14 foot or whatever it was, was coming at my head. And I still remember Coach Strain calling a timeout. And he's just laying into me. What is wrong with you? Why'd you move out of the way? Take the charge. And in my mind, I'm just going, did you see how big that guy's foot was? It's bigger than my head and my chest. I'm like, he would have just flattened me. And, you know, it just was one of those things. But growing up that small, uh, you learn to do things a little differently. So when you do reach into high school, you finally get there. Uh, you know, they told me when I was a freshman, you only weigh 88 pounds. So you literally can play junior high football again if you want. And so I was like, no, no, I want to be with my teammates. Uh, they got me extra small football pants uh, for our team and specially ordered from by Coach Johnson so that I'd have a pair. And uh, they were so big that my knee pads went below my knees and were a little bit hanging down on my shins. So I, I was really tiny. And uh, I just kind of relished it. Uh, I couldn't believe Coach Lunny started me at safety. And I'm back there. And I still remember my first tackle in high school. We're playing Faith Baptist, out at Faith Baptist. And uh, they've got a, a, their quarterback who's on JVs. He's also playing on the varsity team. So he goes about six foot, six one, buck 85. And they run this play and the corner gets faked out. All the linebackers go with the fake. And this guy is just one-on-one -on -one with me coming down the field. He outweighs me by at least 75 pounds. He's a good foot taller than me. And uh, I'm like, okay, okay, what do, what, what do I do? What do I do? Dive at his legs, dive at his legs. So I'm literally diving at his ankles. And uh, this guy could have easily stepped over me, but instead tried to lower his shoulder and run me over. And so I was able to grab onto his foot and drag him down. My first high school tackle, you know, so just an unbelievable experience. <laughs> you gotta love it. Uh, you know, the best way I've, I've heard to describe your, your basketball team and give you a, a few sentences here to, to talk about it. But the best thing I've heard about you guys was that you just knew where each other were going to be at all times. And you guys were just, you know, like, uh, like coach Normandale said in Hoosiers, five pistons firing <laughs> together, you know? No, that's exactly how, how it was. And it felt like to us being out on the field or out on the basketball court, I should say, uh, because coach Drain started with us in seventh grade, this whole new offense. And, uh, whereas before, uh, growing up in the Care Youth League basketball offense, everything was point guard. You have two guys on the wing, two guys down and forward. You just pass. Nobody really breaks. You make cut, and then you're back to your position. Coach Strain brought in this whole offense where it was predicated on movement, and you never stopped moving. So as soon as the point guard made an entry pass into the high post, up to the wing he was breaking and that was something relatively new to all of us and once we started playing these other teams because our size was much smaller than them we had to move all five guys 
had to move. And all five guys on the court had to know what each position did and what each position does on offense. Because you never knew when you're going to find yourself at four foot nine playing the center position. Because after an off ball screen, all of a sudden you're breaking. Now you're feeling that center position. So there was times where multiple times where I'm finding myself down on the low block, you know, trying to trying to post up on a guy who's 5'11", six foot, guarding me down on the low block, and I'm only five foot, five one, and calling for the ball, you know. And in Coach Drain's mind, it didn't matter who was down on the low block. If he had position, you feed him the ball, and he knows what to do and go to work on that guy who's trying to guard him. Yeah. So I, I felt very blessed at an early age to learn all these post-up moves, post-up positions, because especially having a point guard uh, like Rick Johnson, who ran the team in junior high, we learned early, you never take your eyes off the ball and just break somewhere because he saw you, he was going to throw that ball to you. And a couple guys would take it right off the head and, you know, and all of a sudden you're getting subbed out of the game because you weren't ready. Joe Parks, another great uh, passer. He dribbled down, go behind his back, and with the left hand, feed you. And you're just, you just had to be ready. So all five guys on the court had that mentality. No matter if you were a scorer or you are just out there for defense or rebounding, you know, all of us knew from, from number one on the team down to number 12 on the team, you knew where to go. You knew how to get there. You knew how to manage it. And it was almost as if you could inter-replace inter us with one of these 12, and the offense wasn't going to start stop moving. And so uh, all that's a credit to Coach Strain and just building that up in us and teaching us the way to how to do it. Yeah, man, absolutely. I heard you guys just switched, you know, man to man, you switch on defense because you're all kind of short anyway. So it didn't matter. I mean, special, special team. You guys got so close. I've ch chatted about it here on the podcast yeah. a, a few yeah. times. And uh, hey, there's bigger and better things in the world. But uh, you know what? Uh, hey, for four years, baby, there was nothing bigger or better to us, you know, nothing, nothing uh, else mattered. No, I, I look back and I, I miss it all every day. Um, well, well, Pete, you, you, Went to college, well, for a long time, but yeah. uh, <laughs> a long time. I was on a doctor's program. Doctor's program, a decade or so, but uh, you're coaching in RHLA. And Pete, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you're a lifelong Atlantic Pirate, very proud of the Royal Blue and Gold. Yes, sir. But there was one magical year. 19, yes, there was. 1995-96, uh, you know, where you, uh, you went east, young man. You went east to Wingate Park, and uh, you I came did. across – this uh, ragtag bunch of uh, kids known as the Gators. Not many good Gator teams throughout the history of care. I'll say that. But you had the opportunity to coach uh, my, my AAA team, my fifth grade team, man, and coach alongside Gary Shintaku. Uh, I don't care about all the Atlantic years. Talk to me about that that one year with the Gators, that AAA team specifically. Yeah. You know, uh, that year was, was really special for me in two ways. Uh, the first was uh, – I also coached a seven and eight year old team. So they were second graders. And uh, I think your brother was, was, was on that team. So yes. I had Sam on that team and uh, we had 22 players and 
we did not win a football game. We broke up into two teams and lost every game. Basketball season, we broke up into three teams and lost every game. Baseball season, that's where we found our magic. Uh, we won two or three games, and uh, a couple guys started to hit, your brother included. And, uh, you know, it was just, it was fun for me because coming from Atlantic, I had multiple winners every year. And even with a bad Atlantic team, we were always battling to get into championship. But your brother's team, Sam and the boys, yeah. taught me a whole nother experience where losing, I had to figure out a way to get a hold of those players. And to be honest, it was something it, I, I really believe that God said, you know, I'm putting you here to teach you. And luckily, I also worked with the AAA team. Otherwise, I don't know what would have happened to me uh, that year had I not worked with the 10-year-old because, you know, coaching those younger guys would have drove me into an early retirement for sure. But uh, <laughs> getting up to, to be with those 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds, uh, and, and watching how Gary created a practice plan, watching how Gary was so detailed, and then seeing that if you don't let your imagination stall or, or become stagnant, you can really create something great for your teams, no matter how bad they are, no matter how good they are. Because even with your brother's team, by the time we got to soccer, we were playing for championship uh, when we got to soccer. Uh, you know, it helped to have uh, Joey Allred on that team. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, hey, you, you play the players who are, the, who are given to you, you know? That's right. And uh, some of them happen, happen to be special athletes. But, uh, you know, <laughs> Gary taught me a few things. And he also taught me in dealing with that, that – Test them. Don't be afraid to make your players think. Don't be afraid to make your players handle more complex things. It all depends on the way you're going to teach it to them. And I saw Gary take high-level uh, offenses or high-level schemes and break that down for you guys as fifth graders and for you, for you guys to be able to take that and to really – put it in play out on the ball field or on the basketball court was just incredible to watch. It was a great learning experience for me and uh, for my teaching ability and not only teaching, but also for coaching as well. It was just incredible that year. Well, well, Pete, there's nothing better. I, I think in competition than when you beat somebody who is better than, if you're honest, they're better than you. That it's David Goliath, whatever. And I remember that the football team and, and we had, we had lost to it. I'm not to go down memory lane here, youth no, football, no. but, hey. but you know, we but, had lost. You know, go ahead. It, yeah. I think it's, it's super important, not necessarily the, the win, but how you got to that win. The preparation, you can do this. You can do this. If you just unite, you do everything right. 
and and you work hard and we had lost to Atlantic the previous two years in football it was the big rivalry and then we get to this our last year at Gator football and yeah. we got this we got this Atlantic pirate assistant coach with us now we can't possibly <laughs> lose and uh no and and we we oh. did it we beat those guys and they were uh, they were way more talented than us you know Justin oh, Bippy, Justin Pipulaka Eddie Gilmore Adam Gabriel Robert Tate really, I mean I could go on and on go down the list of that team and just like Man, it, they were incredible. Uh, I actually coached that team when I was uh, younger. I had I was doing my mentorship uh, underneath uh, Coach Dan Kirby, and he had those guys. And we were playing, I believe, every year that they were a team, they were in the championship game. Yeah. And they were just stacked from five years old on up. A couple of them went on to play, you know, college football. That's, that's how good they were. Mm-hmm. just incredible and to have that gator team as fifth graders uh because they beat us earlier in the year you know and and just to see you guys your determination and preparation and you know you weren't afraid i think that was huge and that taught me uh, and anybody else who's out there who's a coach or a teacher can can teach you you don't have to be afraid of the obstacles that are in front of you, you can learn to get over those obstacles. You can learn to be successful. Oh, absolutely. And you know, for me, you know, I, I look back and I laugh about it. You know, it's a, you know, fifth grade football or whatever, but it, that was a moment for me as a kid where I was like that, that light bulb moment of, Hey, if you set your mind to something and you, and you're determined, you might fall, you might fall short, but you can at least have a chance of accomplishing absolutely. it. And so you know? that, a fun year, man. And we, they got us in basketball and a half court yeah. shot yeah. still devastates me to this day. Robert Tatum. I can still see it. I can still see it. It's just like, <laughs> that thing's going in. No way. It's just like unbelievable. Half court shot, nothing but net at the buzzer. <laughs> just a battle, a battle yeah. of will. I, th- I thought that game was probably more violent than the football game. Oh, but- I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's a lot of blood and skin on those uh those uh, concrete courts at wingate oh, park yeah. <laughs> so pete you're, you're one with you're, you know you you coached one of the best gator teams ever and my brother's team too uh yeah, yeah. And then you then you went back you went back to the uh the pirate side and and you coached for many years uh in the atlantic pirate organization there uh as i mentioned in college a long time um did you kind of have an idea what you wanted to do while you're in college or did you kind of bounce around? Did you know you always wanted to be a teacher? Well, it's, it's funny that you asked that question because when I was in eighth grade, I felt now, I don't know, you know, I don't know who your listeners are. Um, and I know that, that people probably won't believe this, but I really felt like God was calling me to be an English teacher. Um, I had no idea as an eighth grader who has an idea of what they want, but I really felt like he was putting it on my heart and there was nothing. Nobody said, this was the crazy thing about it. Nothing. Nobody said to me, no coach, no teacher, no, no pastor, no minister, no parent, nothing. Uh, because my dad was in banking. My dad was in finance. And uh, my mom worked for Southern California Edison. So theirs was just like, hey, whatever you want to do, go, go to it and get after it. And so I, I was just like, wow. And I remember kind of 
shocked that I, this was on my heart. And so uh, <laughs> it's funny too, because in eighth grade, I wasn't the best student, you know, I, I was, I was smart, you know, but I'm not like Dave Joe gifted where, you know, you can just uh, grab a book, read through it and figure out, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do on the test. Uh, but I, I really loved it. I love learning new things. I love English. I love literature. And uh, when I got into high school, I thought that I would be counseled a little bit more on what I should do to prepare for college. And uh, I found that, you know, the Marsha Keelers and the Jason Hans and the David Joes of the world kind of had a path that was kind of, you know, set for them or at least guided them. Uh, mine was, uh, you know, why don't you start at the junior college? And it was just like, I was like, well, what is junior college? I didn't even know. You know, my brother played at Citrus, but uh, it, it took a, a minute for me to realize, okay, Citrus is a junior college. And from Citrus, you can transfer to a four-year university. Anyway, I get to college and uh, my senior year, I did really well. And in history, we took a, a national exam and I scored in the 98th percentile. So I, I felt really good about history and not so good about English. Then when I got to college, uh, I felt like, okay, yeah, you know, I can double major. I can do English and history. And then I kind of ran into a couple of, of teachers who weren't very good in my mind as far as English was concerned and thought, okay, yeah, yeah, you know, history. So switched to history and that started this whole saga. And then uh, what I actually transferred in is kind of a, a mind kicker. Uh, I transferred as an architect. Uh, so I didn't even transfer as English or history or teaching or education, but as an architect. So I actually went from Cal Poly, went from Citrus to Cal Poly as an architect major. And so uh, got to Cal Poly, was fired up to be at the four-year university, was super stoked, and just the whole uh, environmental design program was not what I was looking for. And uh, unfortunately for me, my counselor had 300 plus other students and he had his own private practice that he ran. So he wasn't giving me much advice either. So lo and behold, I'm not doing well after I get to Cal Poly. And I just feel like God kept coming to my heart at just crazy times. You know, I'd be sitting in the classroom and it's like, hey, uh, this isn't the class that I wanted you to take. I'm like, pushing it down, pushing it down. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, I know this, you know. And uh, after after struggling, really struggling for a year and a half, I was like, man, I, I, I got to finally listen to God and I got to get out of here. So I walked over to uh, the English and Foreign Languages Department at, at Cal Poly Pomona. And uh, mind you, hadn't seen a counselor, the head of the environmental design, you have to sign up uh, at least a semester in advance just to get into her office to, to speak to her. I go down to uh, English and foreign languages and I walk in and theirs was so different. It was like, hey, how can I help you today? 
What do you need help with? It's like, oh yeah, you, you want to see the head of the foreign languages department? Sure. I'll set up an appointment. Let me hold on. Wait, you may not need an appointment. Let me call down there and she, she's available. So the secretary calls. She says, oh yeah, send him in. I walked down there and Dr. Pukaloro was really a godsend. She welcomed me in with open arms and just uh, took a look at my, my, my school transcripts from Citrus all the way through Cal Poly and was like, ah, you know what? Here's what I can do for you. Da, 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 da. And she's all, what you need to do is go back to environmental design, have that uh, switched over, make sure that they sign it so that they'll allow you to switch over and bingo, you'll be here in English. And from that point on, it was just like night and day. Classes were amazing. The teachers were amazing. The faculty was just incredible to me. And uh, it ended up changing my whole path because uh, through Dr. Fukuloro and Dr. Karen Rusikoff, uh, they brought me on to teach in China for, for uh, this, the summer. And so between my junior and senior year, I went to China to go teach. And that's when God, God uh, you know, spoke to me again. And I know a lot of listeners out there, God can't speak to you, dude. It was literally like somebody standing behind me and just saying, the harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. And that just changed everything. So, so you, you're in uh, schooling for a long time. You, you finally find out what you want to do, uh, what you're called to do. You, you get involved in that and you end up getting uh, called to, to China. So did you have any idea what you were getting into? What was that entire experience like when you went there? Did you feel like you'd be there only a few months? I mean, how did everything, uh, I don't know, transpire there? Oh, man, that, that's a great question. So my first trip was in 2001. And just through Cal Poly, we got a grant from the state of California to go and do research in how to teach uh, English to learners of, of a second language or foreign language. And so we collected a lot of data, wrote all that up and submitted that. And so they took care of the cost for us to travel there. And it really opened my eyes to... Uh, being able to go in and here's the kicker the whole reason why the program got started was because dr fukuloro who's the head of the english and foreign languages department at cal poly and was up until i believe last year and uh, she's kind of scaled back her duties uh, a little bit as well as dr karen rusikoff who's the who was the head of the master's program for teaching english uh as a second language and foreign language. These two ladies traveled to China in 2000 and were there giving seminars and uh, visiting different university campuses. And they're at a university in Beijing. And uh, this is in 2000 and they, they give their talk and then they open it up for Q and A. And one of the students raises his hand and says, uh, excuse me, why are all Americans uh, selfish, lazy, and greedy. And they were kind of like, what? Where, where did you hear that from? Who told you that? <laughs> and uh, after they were, they were told, the student goes, well, it's, it's right here in my English book. And so sure enough, 
It was printed right there in their English book. And so the two women uh, got together after that meeting were like, how can we change the Chinese, the average Chinese person's mind of what Americans are? Because yes, we do have lazy Americans. Yes, we do have selfish Americans. Yes, we have greedy Americans. But most of the Americans work very hard to support their families. Most Americans go out there and, and try to be productive people in society. And so taking that into consideration, they're like, how can we put together some, something that will represent America? And so fast forward you know, to, the, to the fall semester, and uh, I'm in a class with Dr. Pucoloro, and uh, it's a class that's set up to bring your computer and, and multimedia, yada, 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 into the classroom to teach high school students. So I get there, and during the middle of class, she asks, hey, you want to go to China? And I'm like, <laughs> no way. You know, and all the students around me are like, what? How computer gets to go and we don't, you know? And then a couple of them were like, oh, China, I don't want to go to China. It's like, you're going to get run over by a tank or, you know, the people there are going to arrest you for, for being a foreigner, you know? And, and so kind of this kind of floated up in the class. And so then uh, a couple of weeks later, she said, no, I'm serious. So the whole uh, spring and, and winter quarters, we were preparing and doing lesson plans, getting ready to go over and put on this camp. And when we got there, we had no idea where we were going. We landed at a newly built Pudong Airport uh, just outside of Shanghai. And we were driven for about six hours into a city called Hangzhou. And uh, from Hangzhou, uh, we went over and uh, went to Hangzhou. And there we went to a small podunk little village. And uh, in this village was just an amazing group of teachers amazing group of students. And uh, based off of that, we almost left uh, all of this because of what was going on uh, in our classrooms, because the administrators at this particular school wanted things done one way. And uh, from there, our uh, teachers were like, hey, wait a second, we're not gonna do it that way. We've literally spent two, two quarters preparing all of our lessons, we want it done this way. So we had a big mm, sit down uh, conversation with them and they're like, okay, 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 we'll do it your way. And once they saw us get in the classroom and, and teach their kids and see how much their students English improved by the time the summer camp was over, you know, we taught for 21 days straight almost. I think we had two days off in between those 21 days. And uh, the kids, they grew so much. Uh, Dr. Rustikoff figured out that we taught a semester's worth of English in that time wow. that we were there for three weeks. And you could see it pay off uh, almost by day seven. You could really start to see it. And that's kind of what made us all kind of high five each other every night when we got home. So much work, Matt, was put into that. It was crazy the amount of work that we did as teachers to prepare for each day that we went into that classroom with those kids 
Oh, I can't imagine. I mean, English as a second la- language for anybody is tough. I mean, especially there. I mean, so you guys got the ball rolling, you got your juices flowing and everything, and it just motivated you to, to do more and want to stay there longer? Yeah, so uh, after it was over, we had a tour of uh, Hangzhou, China. And while we were there on this tour, that's when I felt uh, God saying, hey, you know what? Take a look, buddy. And as you're looking out around it, you just see, you know, because I was on a, a hill that's raised above this just beautiful lake in the, in the city of Hangzhou, beautifully designed. So coming at it from an architectural standpoint, the city was outstanding, just beautifully designed around this lake. And to be above that and to see all of these people down there and just going, wow, that's amazing. And he's telling me the harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. And I'm looking out going, you're right about that. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know, because no you, you don't see really any foreign faces back in 2000. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't real chic to go visit China back then. And so, uh, but I felt on my heart, like something needed to be done, especially in education for them learning English. Because what I found is I went back uh, for uh, six years straight, six summers straight, either leading a group of students from universities here in the States to China or being a person on one of those one of those groups. And because of that, I got to see so much of China, especially in the early developmental stages of, of China, that when we finally got into it, I realized towards the end, I was doing seminars, teaching Chinese teachers how to teach English. And many of them would come back to me. We love, we love what, what you have, the methods that you're using here, but we can't use that in our classroom. Our students won't thrive on that. And so I was asking, well, what's going on there? Why won't your students thrive? Why can't you use it? because we've seen the evidence of it. And, you know, I feel really felt it put on my heart that, hey, you gotta come in here and try to do something. Mm. And, you know, I, I don't know, because by then I started working at a school in Duarte. And so I had been there for uh, eight or nine years before I felt like, okay, it's time for me to go to China and really see if I could put in this program that God is putting on my heart to put in. Wow. Well, I know you went there and you told us when you would come back and forth a few times, you know, you got, uh, uh, I don't know. I think it was, you told us, uh, they called you Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant a time or two. Uh, just so you're like, yeah, I'm a little shorter than those guys. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, you know, it, it's crazy because they're watching basketball games, but when you look at a basketball court, everybody's the same height. Yeah. So for them watching it on TV only and then realizing that, you know, Kobe Bryant's six foot five, six, six, Jordan, six, five, six, six. And I'm barely five, eight, five, nine on a good day, you know, and then, yeah, we're really not that close. Yeah, I've got a little bit of basketball skill. 
but it's nothing like these guys have. <laughs> I'm not even in the same city as these guys, not even in the same zip code. And so, but they, they, they really were so gracious and wanting to learn. That was a great thing. The kids there, they just want to learn and eat everything up. Oh yeah. You know, it's the adults that are kind of pushing everything back going, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't want you learning everything. How about just stick to the plan that we have here? And so, you know, just uh, I shaved my head one day and they're like, oh, Michael Jordan. I'm like, yeah, not so much. <laughs> and then uh, telling telling the students there, hey, I'm from L.A. Oh, do you live near Kobe? I'm like, yeah, we're, we're kind of not in the same neighborhood. <laughs> you know, I can drive to his neighborhood, but I don't think the gate guards are going to let me in. Sure. It's just like uh, so it, it was really an eye-opening experience for me seeing them and, and understanding that. Yeah. It was no, cool. I mean, knowledge is power for sure. And, and just to be able to educate them on, on just a lot of different things, as you've mentioned, yeah. uh, uh, Pete, I, I got to ask, um, and, and I'll let you answer however you want. I'm not even sure how I want to answer the, ask the question, but having lived in China for quite some time, um, you know, China is, uh, it's it's uh it's a little crazy right now, and I, I don't even know how I want to ask this, but did you get a sense while you were there that oh this is a completely different part of the world, and um, maybe the freedoms and such that that we just take for granted here, a lot of people can't don't have the opportunity to even appreciate. I mean, what can you speak of kind of the, your overall maybe your your experience there wasn't that bad, or maybe it was I don't know, but what can you tell me about just what we as Americans need to know about China and kind of the lifestyle there? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, especially in the beginning when, you know, I'd show up 2000, 2001, 2002, you know, it was very regimented. Um, now, the first year that I went there, there were actual soldiers in the airport carrying, you know, Russian-made rifles. So that was something that was, you know, just kind of like bizarre for me. Um, and the people there, if you talk to the people, they're just like the people in the States. They're just like the peoples in Europe, the peoples, the people in Europe. They're just like the Australians in the fact that they want the best possible life for themselves. They're going to pursue it. And they want to get to make sure they take care of their families, make sure they take care of their children and show them the love by taking care of them. You know, I think every person in China has that same goal, has that same mentality. Uh, how they get about doing that is obviously a little different than here in the States. Um, I love the people of China. Uh, I, I found it every day a chance to not only show Christ, but the love of Christ, but also to show them someone from America who goes to their country with love in their heart and not all of these preconceived notions or ideas that have been media driven or 
some guys trying to sell a book or somebody wants to do that, you know, because having, you know, you probably know this, having traveled to Europe and, and just seeing the ugly American. And there's a reason why people of the world think that mm. because we here tend to be more privileged, um, tend to be, you know, there's a, there's slinging around, you know, white privilege now. And I'm just like, dude, you know, every person in America has some sort of privilege or not, whether you're white, black, Hispanic, Asian, we're all privileged here mm. because when I was there, there's things you can't say. My first couple of years, you know, we'd have the police come to our hotel and ask us why we were there. You know, uh, especially if you got away from the big cities, you're getting into some of these smaller places and the police want to know, okay, what are you doing here? You're a foreigner. What are you doing in this area? And, you know, as the leader of, of the teaching group, you have to be straightforward with them. You know, we're running an English program here. Uh, one poor lady, we had to stop our, our English program because the local guys were giving her such a hard time. And she had opened up her own business and, and she was doing it well. And this is, you know, in 2006, 2005. And she's, she's working hard and she's just trying to have that entrepreneurial spirit that we here in the States take for granted. She has taken that upon herself to provide for her and give her daughter a, a better, a better chance, a better future. And, you know, these, these officers come by and, you know, in their defense, they don't know who we are and the proper paperwork wasn't given to them, letting them know who we were and why we were there. And so they've got to make sure that they're keeping everyone safe, let alone you got a bunch of foreigners who just showed up. Here in America, we'd never think twice about it. But over there, you know, when you're dealing with, you know, 1.4, you know, million, billion people, uh, you've got to make sure that society is maintained because you can't let it go off the rails. If you let it go off the rails, it's game over for you. Hmm. Uh, if, if you let, you know, here in the States, the police, uh, local leaders, they let everyone go out and protest. They let people shut down the middle of the street. But we also saw out of those protests, there was looting. And the people who had those stores or who managed those stores or who worked at those stores had nothing to do with what was going on. But people still went after those stores and rioted, looted, used, used justice as a name for them to be able to go out and do wrong. And if that happens in China, China loses control of, of the whole city, the whole country. And you can't, you can't allow, because it's so dense, the population is so dense, you can't allow that to happen. And in their defense, 
you know, I wouldn't let it happen. Uh, if, if I'm a civic leader there, you can't let stuff get out of control like that. Now, I thought that they did some things that were good uh, while, I, while I'd been living there. They let people protest. And those people went out in the streets, protested, you know, and, and they let them break off some steam, you know, let some steam out. But uh, that doesn't happen very often. And, hmm. and you know, uh, nowadays uh, for foreigners there, it, it's getting more and more difficult uh, because I think the world opened their arms to them and they're the factory of the world where every country is having stuff made in China and sent back to their country. And, uh, you know, it's similar, uh, not to go back in history, but it, it's similar to the King of England and what he did with the colonies set up here in the new world you know stuff was being taken from the new world resources were being made here sent back to london and uh those resources were there then sold in london at a higher rate and all of a sudden those same resources were coming back to the colonies and sold at london prices and the colonists couldn't afford those and they're just going wait I think I built this, you know, and so uh, the colonies were, were London's factory or England's factory uh, no, around the world. And so, uh, you know, there comes a time where the people who are creating those are going to stop creating it or there's going to be some type of problem. History has a weird way of uh, repeating itself sometimes and just going around and around in circles and as a former history major. I'm, I know you know all too well about all that. Uh, Pete, as we kind of wrap it up here, I kind of want to end with something well, pretty positive because you've mentioned uh, you've mentioned her already, um, but I don't know how many people know the story necessarily of you meeting Sarah. You guys have been married eight months now. Uh, you've said some incredible words about her and her just her being a godsend and being there for you in a very difficult time. Uh, but what can you tell me about uh, where you met the future Mrs. Uh, Sarah Clark? Yeah, it was uh, it was in one of the cities that I, I worked at in China. And um, we were actually set up on a blind date. And uh, I'm pretty sure most of your listeners don't know what the app is that's called WeChat. But uh, we were set up through WeChat. And um, it's... It's like uh, if you were to take um, TikTok and uh, take uh, Facebook and take um, uh, one of those paying type of apps and roll it all into one app. That's what WeChat is. And uh, the person who created WeChat uh, is a phenomenal app. Anyway, uh, a friend of mine who was doing like-minded work in China. He's the one who set us up and uh, he introduced us into a room and he worked at an international school. And so I just assumed the person was American. And uh, because when we were set up in the chat, uh, the profile picture was a cartoon. So I, I couldn't even see what the person looked like. And we just spoke all in English and you know, him working there in China and all a lot of his colleagues came from the States or from Europe. And so 
they all could speak Chinese or type Chinese. So seeing them type back in Chinese, just was like, oh yeah, that's normal. You know, uh, oftentimes my British friend, uh, Ben and I, we'd chat back and forth in Chinese and every once in a while, you know, use English. And so it's just one of those things. I don't know how to explain it. Anyway, uh, we decide to meet at Starbucks and uh, the Starbucks there are incredible. Uh, they've got two-story Starbucks in so many locations and they're just well run, uh, well done. And this one happened to be like midway point between our two houses. So as, as I'm sitting there, I arrive early uh, because she has a, a work meeting and she gets there a little later. So I set up camp on the second floor with a visible exit to my right and uh, the stairs that she has to walk up right directly in front of me. And so <laughs> she has to turn her back towards me uh, as she comes up the stairs. So I could use that as, as a way to get out. And so uh, uh, anyway, <laughs> as she comes walking up the stairs, I'm just like, huh, I think this is the person. And I'm like, whoa, not bad, not bad at all. <laughs> and so as she comes up the stairs, uh, she sits down and um, we get, she gets there about 545 and we just talk. And uh, <laughs> the funny thing is we start to talk in Chinese and because she's a, a Chinese teacher, my, my Chinese that I learned wasn't through education or academic means. My Chinese is a survival Chinese. So I can get anywhere around the country, anywhere I want speaking Chinese and have no problems at all. But in everyday conversation, it's a little more difficult once they tend to change the subject or say something. So it, it can be more difficult for me. Anyway, that being said, we're speaking in Chinese for about the first five to 10 minutes. And she's like, you know what? Uh, how about we just continue this conversation in English? And I was like, oh, thank you. And so, uh, <laughs> you know, we spent the next uh, four and a half hours just talking in English and uh, just having a wonderful time, of, you know, just fellowship and just, uh, I think we both walked away going, wow, that was, that was a great time. And um, just following that up and, uh, you know, a little tidbit, uh, her mom, you know, uh, doesn't like me very much. <laughs> uh, you know, there's several factors. One is, uh, as you can imagine, uh, trying to put, it's difficult for Americans to understand the Chinese mindset, but in China, a lot of mothers grow up with the dream that their daughters will meet someone in a successful line of work and therefore be success because the parents in China, they don't have retirement plans in China. So the parents plan is their children. And the 10 years that I was there, I've seen China's one child policy get chained uh, because they realize, hey, we can't, we can't handle the amount of older citizens in our society if families keep having one child. And the burden on the, on the man is, the man's job is to take care of 
not only his parents, but also the other parents as well. And if the grandparents are still alive, that burden falls on the man as well. So now the, the guy is basically the leader of the family unit, and he's got to take care of two retired parents on his side, two retired parents on the other side, possibly two sets of grandparents that are still retired. And so he's got to give the money to them plus provide for his own family. So the burden can be great for the Chinese man in that. And I think a lot of them do the best that they can and some of them do do it really well. And so, you know, me coming in as, as a foreign guy, it's like, this guy's just gonna take my child. And all of a sudden I've got nothing. I've got no communication skills with this guy. I've got no abilities to relate with this guy at all. And then my grandchildren are going to be uh, of two worlds. It's like, how, how, how can I handle that? And, you know, uh, her, her brother was, was just amazing in the fact that uh, he, he couldn't make it to the wedding because, uh, oh, yeah, Matt, we, we got married uh, in, in August of 2020. So uh, we've, we've been married a, a year now. We just had our, our anniversary. And so in, in, when we had the wedding in 2020, he couldn't fly out and be a part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but another one of God's great blessings was one of her best friends from China uh, who worked at the same school she did met online a Chinese expat who was seeking asylum here in the States and lived 15 minutes away from us. So it's just amazing. And so she considers her best friend like her sister. And so they were able to be a part of our wedding group and be a part of that wedding mix. And, you know, those days where you miss home, because even for me living in China, there was days where I would miss America, miss home. And it usually always came up when baseball season started because I would stream games online and just see the beautiful grass there. But because China's so dense, there's not very much grass, playable grass to be on there Hmm. in the heart of the city. You know, in my apartment complex, uh, there was probably 10,000 people that lived in my apartment complex alone. And so, you know, we had... We had 52 units that went up to the 32nd floor on every unit and just apartments on every floor except for the ground level. And so just imagine how many people that is that you're seeing on a day-to-day basis. And so just the homesickness, she's, she's been a super trooper in handling that. And it's been a thing that God has orchestrated his plan and had his one of her best friends live within 15 minutes of us has just been incredible and and just those times when she misses home or she's tired of speaking english all day and she just wants to speak some chinese you know most of your listeners are oh she shouldn't have any problem whatsoever with that she can go out and she you know right there in san gabriel valley there's just it's chinese central (laughs) you know (laughs) <laughs> and 
<laughs> we see that every day, you know, and it's been a great opportunity for me to practice my Chinese too, That's but right. it's, it's much different trying to handle a conversation with someone like that versus a personal friend who you consider family, you know, hmm. and uh, it just has been great. She's been amazing. And our, our whole experience has been, uh, you know, one for me of joy. And I say that as, as James puts it in, in the first chapter of going through a trial with joy and having that joy come out in your everyday life. Uh, because when we left China, we only came here for vacation. Uh, we literally were flying back February 6th and we arrived to surprise my, my family and friends on Christmas Eve of 2019. And we had apartments, she had her apartment, I had my apartment, all our stuff was in there. Oh. And all of a sudden it's just like, hey, wait a second, this uh, pandemic is, is global. And it's like, uh, my principal at my school, she, she's like, uh, Peter, uh, don't come back. It's things here aren't going well. Mm. And, uh, you know, you talk about taking a different stance on lockdown situations. Uh, my city is about a, a two hour flight away from where the epicenter was. And so uh, we're not real close, but, you know, we're kind of, kind of close enough. And in my apartment complex, you couldn't get, so everyone in my city had to be in their apartment only. And you could go out uh, for two hours once a week to get supplies. Talk about a lockdown. Wow. So everything was just shut down. And because of the app and technology nowadays, if you wanted to go somewhere, you on the app had to like uh, register and they had levels, green, yellow, orange. So people are going around green level, yellow, level, orange level, red level. If you were red, you were dumped. You had a mandatory quarantine where you're at. So just everything that we've been through together as a couple has only made us stronger. And, uh, you know, like you said, <laughs> we've probably lived a good 10 years in the one year of marriage that we've been married for. And so yeah. it, it's, just, uh, it's just been great. And really, uh, the icing on, on top of the cake was uh, going across. We had a 27-day road trip that we took across America back to the state of Michigan. And uh, we were in Michigan for a couple weeks, and she got to meet some, some people she calls her Michigan family. Uh, the parents call her their daughter. And she was in a wedding that uh, their youngest daughter had. So that was just a phenomenal experience for us to be able to to go and see America and see just how beautiful America is and just uh, experience the different cultural aspects as to each part, each state that you drive through. And so we visited 10 states in all and uh, the whole way there, uh, or I would say from Oklahoma City to Michigan, we were able to visit friends and family. And then on the way back, we visited uh, old, old RHP members from Ann Umemura, uh, who's now a, a doctor at the University of Michigan. 
and uh, doing well. And I was able to visit a couple friends of mine on the way back who were working to Dave Hong and his family mm. in the St. Louis area and Esther Hong and just uh, visit them. And, and, you know, they gave us encouragement. We were able to give them encouragement and some friends, dear friends of mine from China who I was able to visit in Indiana, uh, you know, Michigan as well, down through Texas, uh, St. Louis, the Baumgartners, Mr. Mm. and Mrs. Baumgartner, uh, they hosted us for an evening and uh, let us stay at their house in Missouri. And it's just, it was just an amazing 27 days for us and just a, a true blessing that uh, each person had on us as we traveled across the states. Uh, it's like a Mr. Johnson six week summer trip. You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Give her the full experience. Well, Pete, uh, in all seriousness, we're glad you're back because, uh, you know, who knows how things would have gone had everything happened while you're in China. And, uh, you know, uh, you guys seem to be living the good life now, traveling, you're teaching, uh, you got her grading papers for you. I mean, what else can you ask of this woman, man? I mean, come on now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> things, things, uh, I, I still find it hard to believe that, uh, you were in the condition you were a few short months ago. It's, it's just crazy sitting here talking with you. I could talk with you another, another two hours, but, yeah, uh, yeah. we got to yeah, get yeah. moving. I don't want, I don't want somebody falling asleep driving while they're listening to me. So, you know. <laughs> go, go take, uh, go, go take the missus to dinner or something. And uh, man, it's, has been, this has been a pleasure uh, chatting with you. I'm glad we got to finally do it, man. Thank you for sharing all your experiences. Uh, obviously um, what happened a few months ago, but also, you know, your time in China, your time in RHP and coaching and everything. We didn't even get to your Oklahoma Sooners. I know you're excited about yeah, football season, you know, right? Yeah, I'm fired up. We'll see what they do in a couple of years in the SEC. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Be careful what you wish for, man. Be I, careful. But, uh, and Pete, for, for me and my brother, thank you for the memories. Thanks for, you know, all the, uh, all the lessons uh, you bestowed upon us at a young age. And just, there's so many kids out there who owe so much to you. And, and it was so good seeing you a few weeks ago at Mr. Drain's party. Yeah, Matt, definitely. And uh, just uh, looking forward to uh, any time in the future. Uh, I'm sorry it took so long to make this happen, but uh, I'm happy that we were able to do it. Absolutely, man. Well, take care, Pete. Give my best to Sarah, and uh, we'll talk to you or see you soon. Yeah, absolutely. Take care, brother. You too. Well, I say it often, but you know, at the end of these episodes, I am just incredibly blessed, and that was absolutely a an honor to do with my good friend Pete. Haven't chatted with him in a long time, but I it's so good to hear he's doing so well after. A scary situation a few months ago. I hope you guys found that as entertaining as I did and can't wait to, uh, to see Pete soon and maybe, uh, maybe, maybe share a meal or something uh, and chat with uh, his wonderful wife, Sarah. That'd be a lot of fun. So we covered a lot today. It's a long episode. Thanks for bearing with us. I will uh, step aside uh, for a few days and be back with you guys Monday as we have uh, another Real Hondo Prep football uh, recap show, as well as a preview show of the upcoming opponents. So Thank you, Pete Clark, for doing this. It's been a long time in the making, but we got it done. Um, that was one of my favorite episodes we've done here. So, uh, guys, uh, you have a wonderful weekend. And uh, as always, no matter what you're doing, whether you're out on the town or around in third base, get home safe.